outside one of these museums is a park bench, and there is a bronze statue of Jan Karski sitting on that park bench. You can sit down next to him. And I really felt shivers. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. We're here with David Hoffman. He got a start at Capitol Hill News Service as a member of the San Jose Mercury News. He covered the White House under Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush for the Washington Post. He was the chief of the Jerusalem Bureau for the Washington Post. And, you know, like any normal person, he went to Oxford, studied Russian, and then became the Moscow bureau chief. I'm not sure how you do that, but you did it. He's written several books. The Oligarchs, Wealth and Power in the New Russia was published by Public Affairs in 2002. The Dead Hand, The Untold Story of the Cold War Arms Race and Its Dangerous Legacy was uh, Doubleday 2009, and that won in a little award called Pulitzer Prize. He wrote Billion Dollar Spy, A True Story of Cold War Espionage and Betrayal, Doubleday 2015. And today he is here at the Miami Book Fair to talk about his newest book, Give Me Liberty, The True Story of Oswaldo Paya, and his daring quest for free Cuba. That's Simon & Schuster, 2022. The book that David Hoffman chose today is Story of a Secret State by Jan Karski, a monster of a book. If you are inclined to read along with the podcast or if you like books, or if you want to weep and be simultaneously infuriated and also inspired, you should pause this podcast, read this book, and then come back and hear us talk about it. David Hoffman is an expert in this subject, and this was an amazing book, and I had never heard of it. So welcome, David Hoffman. We're happy to have you. And why did you pick this book? So Jan Karski's book is really fascinating because he was a young, sort of a happy-go-lucky Pole. When the World War II arrived to Poland, his, you know, life of gay parties and just general living without concern completely changed. <laughs> and he became part of the Polish underground and performed a lot of daring missions for the underground, you know, carrying messages. He was captured. He has a lot of really horrifying and terrifying moments in this book. But the one that will really stick in your memory forever mm-hmm. is that as part of this experience, he went in disguise to see the Nazi concentration camps. And this particular mission was something that I think any of us reading, it would just make you shiver in the pages because he dressed up as a Estonian guard. Mm-hmm. So he put on another man's guard's uniform and cap. The cap was too big. He had to stuff it full of some newspapers so it would sort of fill out. Here he is sort of a little awkward in clothes that are not his. And he's going to a death camp and he's going in posing as a guard in this death camp and not really sure is he going to get out. And when he gets out, he does something immensely important, which I'll get to. But first, let's talk about that trip. I mean, he goes marching through the woods. He gets into this place, right? Well, before we get there, yeah, let's just back up and give you like the Polish underground. Yeah. So this book starts with Jan Karski at a party. He talks about the yeah. lights and the atmosphere, happiness. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like any other day. And then the Germans invade Poland. And the, what, what struck me not knowing anything about this book was in the space of a couple of days, he goes from being at a party. He gets a knock on his door at three in the morning that says, you're in the army go muster at this railroad station. They take a train to the middle of nowhere where they're supposed to meet the Russians. The Russians don't show up. They just bomb them from the air. And all of a sudden the Polish army no longer exists. And there's all these men who a week ago were just wandering around Warsaw doing their thing and are now soldiers without a commander. And without training. And it's unclear who's in charge of the country. It's either the Russians or the Germans, depending on where you go. And he ends up in a camp. He ends up under As a Russian POW, he ends up as a German POW, and he eventually makes his way back to Warsaw with fake papers and begins work in what the title of the book is. It begins work in the Polish underground, the Polish secret state. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The Polish secret state was this huge sort of underground organization. Everybody that was part of it was risking their lives under German occupation, but also it organized the resistance to Nazism. I mean, the Poles did not go lightly into the dark here. And I, in the book, he lists uh, 
Ten Commandments of Resistance. <laughs> and he says these were issued by the party that became bywords on the tongues and the hearts of these oppressed people. So these were like things to do that just keep with you every day. It, you know, fight stubbornly for independence. You know, build up your organizations so that's able to establish a Poland of people with a peasant class as a foundation, a Poland without any elite, any cliques or dictatorship, a Poland democratic and law-abiding with a freely elected parliament. I mean, in the middle of the Nazi dictatorship, these people are passing these piece of paper around with these ideals of free democratic. And on pain of death, they're continuing this essentially secret government. You know, serve your country honestly, for you are her nourisher. I think a lot of people sometimes have forgotten what citizenship really means when you have to fight for it with your life. And people in Ukraine today will read these Ten Commandments, and they're going through the same thing right this very minute. Yeah, there, I, I thought about that when I was reading this book, and I guess some of the slight differences are that the Ukrainian government is not in exile. The official Polish government went into exile in France pretty much in immediately. London. In, in London. 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 Okay. But yeah, they go almost overnight from being a free country to being an occupied country. The thing that really stood out to me, it's somewhere in the beginning of the book where they begin with saying that the Polish government must continue without interruption, operating in complete freedom. And even if that means that the operatives have to risk their lives. Poland continually had a government throughout World War II, even though it was a secret government, but that was the government that was recognized by the Allies. But, you know, Poland didn't really have an army that could fight the Nazis. Ultimately, it's the Allies who liberate Poland, but they had an enormous sort of society there working hard, taking the big chances. And I visited Poland not too long ago, and the, the museums in Poland to this period of their history are just fascinating. You know, there are not many museums about the period after World War II and the, the period of communism, and I hope they build some, but the museums about the partisans, about the Warsaw Ghetto, and, you know, you walk in Poland and you suddenly see this, like, black grate on the street. It's a monument, actually, to the place, it was the escape great where some of them, you know, crawled through the sewers to escape. I mean, it's just like this history is very, very real and you can feel it. Why do you think this book is not taught to everyone in school? Well, it should be. I think so too. But the most important thing we haven't gotten to yet, because this effort by Karski in the underground eventually takes them on this mission to see a Nazi concentration camp. So I'm going to just jump in here. Because it was a this transit was, camp. It was, it was a death camp. I yeah. mean, this is the thing, you know, you hear stories from the concentration camps where people were liberated and survived. There was no pretense at this camp. This, they literally shipped people here to murder them. Right. And there was no other reason for the camp to exist. It was called Belzec. And I think that there were very, very few who witnessed what was happening and understood it. But there were some. And a big question for American history is, you know, could we have stopped it? And if we had known what would we have done? And this was, of course, the question for Roosevelt. But the important thing is, he's an eyewitness. Okay, what did he witness? After he walked into this place, he wrote, and, and this is memoir material, okay? There's no photographs of this. This is from his mind, but it's very, very important. The chaos, he wrote. The squalor, the hideousness of it all was simply indescribable. There was a suffocating stench of sweat, filth, decay, damp straw, excrement. To get to my post, we had to squeeze our way through the mob. It was a ghastly ordeal. I had to push foot by foot through the crowd and step over the limbs of those who were lying prone. It was like forcing my way through a mass of sheer death and decomposition. After a little while, in the days there, they start to pack the rail cars with these people. And he estimates that if every human being were standing upright in one of these rail cars, you could get a, maybe 100 people standing cheek to jowl, standing upright. They started putting 140 people into these things, piling people on top of people, basically to kill them. Naked. Yes. Close the doors, yeah. and he counted more than 40 rail cars filled with human beings, allowed to die. The rail car is then driven to a giant field, and the dead people are buried and mm. burned. The, the rail car is driven to a giant field, left there for several days until everyone's dead. And the the detail that like I just can't wrap my head around is that they put quicklime on the floor of the rail cars, which if you've ever done construction is, you know, it's one of the things you use to make cement. 
but it will burn your hands if it comes in contact with burns water. Flesh. Burns flesh. It's uh, it's what they used in in Fight Club. This is before they started burning people at yeah. Auschwitz and Treblinka. But it was just the detail of putting that on the floor and to, to A, torture anyone who was walking on it barefoot, but B, it sort of starts the bodies decomposing. I had a lot of trouble imagining who could come up with something like that. And just that like human beings can be that cruel to each other. It, uh, it was, you know, you, you, everybody knows about the Holocaust in the West. We've read about the Holocaust. I, I have Jewish ancestry. This is, you know, something I'm familiar with. And I just never thought of the sheer evil of those types of details. But now comes the next really important thing. First of all, he has no proof. He has no photographs. There's no documents, but he escapes and he gets out and he takes these images with him. He says, the images of what I saw in the death camp are, I'm afraid, my permanent possessions. I'd like nothing better than to purge my mind of these memories. But of course he can't. Eventually he tries to warn the world of what's happening here. And this is already more than halfway through World War II. And he, he finally gets to Washington and he tells Roosevelt. And of course, there are aerial photographs too that Roosevelt had. And, you know, the United States made a decision to put its resources and its emphasis on ending the war altogether rather than just focusing on camps. But Jan Karski is a hero for this incredibly brave and courageous warning that he gave us all. And I think this idea of courage and of standing up to a totalitarian system, that's sort of what I'm about. And that's what my new book is about, too. So. It's, it's amazing that he was able to do that. Another detail I just want to pull out of this book is that he told this story to a member of the Polish National Council in Exile, whose name was Shmuel Zeigelbaum. And he told him about the death camps and about the Warsaw Ghetto. And the official committed suicide. Wow. He thought he couldn't do enough. And, you know... What do you do in that in the face of that kind of evil? We're, you're a historian, and I just want to ask you, does Nazism and its manifestation in World War II have any historical precedent? Well, sure, it does, because dictatorship has historical precedent, but and fanaticism has historical precedent. And, you know, human beings have been fighting through a lot of their existence for this idea of freedom and of not being ruled. You know, the, the pharaoh was a dictator, and hmm. the Jews fled that dictatorship in hopes of finding some freedom. Uh, you know, that story was not that different. <laughs> I guess I mean the the death camps. I can't think of any, and maybe you can set me straight, but I can't think of any other historical situation where just massive amounts of people were just sent to die, just sent to be exterminated. It certainly was ranks up there in the, the worst of world <laughs> history. But how many times in history has one man, one single individual surrounded and joined by millions who are suffering, mm. decided to fight for them, decided to stand up for them. Huh. I mean, that's the really different thing here. When you go to Warsaw, outside one of these museums is a park bench, and there is a bronze statue of Jan Karski sitting on that <laughs> park bench. You can sit down next to him. Wow. And I really felt shivers thinking that, you know, I was at least in the presence of his memory. And I admire the guy for that singular individual desire to do something for all those people that he saw. That's so amazing. One of the reasons I have this show is to, you know, hear brilliant people's interpretations of their favorite books. And it's amazing that, you know, I could not get past the content of this book, but you're right that it really is about this character. I almost forgot the main character because the story was so swept me away, but yeah, of course he's a hero and he, you know, and he's, he's a very self-effacing narrator. He's just, you know, from his perspective, he's just doing his own thing helping his country in the small way. But yeah, he's really, he's a freedom fighter. But you know, after he saw that death camp and went through, saw those people being packed into the trains, he escapes and he gets into this small little village. And, you know, it's not like he sits down, writes a report. He becomes very ill. And he's just vomiting and sick. Why? Because he's emotionally racked by what, what he saw. You know, he's human. Yeah, I, I mean, so as I'm sitting there having a physical reaction to reading these pages, I was thinking about that, that like his reaction was, well, he, he got sick. He, I mean, he was violently ill. He said every time he thought about it, he would get ill. And if you read this book, I mean, I can't think about it without getting emotional. So it's like I, I got a sort of a smaller version of this. But if, if you read this book and you read those pages, it, it will be your permanent possession. Also, you will never forget it. So it's a horrible thing. So Jan Karski is a freedom fighter. And you are a man who likes to write books about freedom fighters. And you have a new book about a freedom fighter. This freedom fighter I had never heard of. 
Oswaldo Paya. The book is Give Me Liberty. So let's start with Jose Marti. Jose Marti was a intellectual who was also a prolific teacher, writer, and Cuban independence hero. He spent a lot of his life in New York trying to organize a movement for independence of Cuba. And, you know, at the time it was the last sort of colony of Spain and the New World. Spain had lost some of the others already. And Jose Martí was like a, a short little guy. You know, he was a little pale and he was very, very talkative. And he wrote for newspapers and magazines. A lot of what he wrote about was America, the United States. Uh, he wrote an essay on Walt Whitman that was published throughout Latin America. Actually, much of what Latin America knew about Walt Whitman was because Jose Marti had profiled him in, in this way of being both sort of a public intellectual, of a teacher, and also of a campaigner. He began to try to organize a movement to liberate Cuba from Spanish rule. Spanish rule was brutal. Cubans themselves had very little to do with how they were ruled. The Spanish governor general was uh, basically a small dictator, you know, and the Spaniards controlled a lot of the very, very rich crops and business that came in. They took a lot of it home with them. <laughs> so the Cubans didn't yeah. control their own destiny. So, but Martí as this sort of little guy who was had a lot of words, was not a warfighter, and he had to find a way there had been a rebellion in Cuba, the first war. It lasted 10 years in the 19th century. And by 1895, that war had died out. Cuba had freed slaves, which were a big part of its population, but they were still ruled by Spain. And Martí had to find some generals <laughs> to lead the war. And there was two generals in particular who were very, very important from the previous war. And the three of them, General Gomez, Maceo Marti didn't get along. The generals thought, this little pipsqueak guy, he's all talk, right? <laughs> and we're going to fight the war. And he said, you've got to fight the war. So they uh, eventually returned to Cuba. Marti returns with General Gomez on a dinghy, and they land in Cuba. They have a meeting. They disagree about how to fight the war, but the war's already begun. The rebels have already started in 1895 to fight the Spaniards. And Martí gets there a little bit late, but the war's underway. And actually, on this day in 1895, he decides he wants to see the war. And he rides out there. The legend is on a white steed. But he was shot and killed on really the first day. So this uh, heroic sort of thing, organizing the war, getting the generals to do it as much as they told him to go home, eventually dying in combat, creates a legend, but it's not one that was immediate. Of course, the Spanish-American War happens. The United States comes, you know, Theodore Roosevelt rides, and Cuba's liberated. It's under U.S. occupation for two years, and finally in 1902 becomes independent. But from 1902 until the, through the 1920s, a lot of Cubans, including the ones who were born around that time, who come of age when 1920, 20. They begin to say, you know, what we fought for, independence and freedom and liberty, isn't really happening. They were sort of mired in a proto-democracy, you know, there was a lot of corruption. The war generals were still basically the various presidents of Cuba. And so by the 1920s, people started rediscovering Jose Martí, the war hero. And really, the most important biography of Martí, written by a Cuban intellectual, Jorge Manach, came out in the early 1930s. And people saw this enormous volume of inspirational things he had written about the need for independence in Cuba. Cuba went through a period of dictatorship in the early 1930s. Martí then becomes the hero. He then becomes the voice of Cuban independence, of the ideals that they fought the war for. And I think that this is very, very important for this small place because Martí actually was not a warrior. You know, <laughs> He was a political activist. But what he had to say inspired a huge number of people that this is what we must do. I love the, the metaphor in your book of Jose Mati, of this man who had these lofty ideals and all these great ideas for Cuba that everybody loved. And the moment he tries to put them into practice by going into war, he just gets murdered. Like he, he literally just walks right into the war and dies. And it sets the stage for the rest of 
Cuban history, as you tell it through the eyes of Oswaldo Paya, that like all these great ideas just run up against, you know, Castro started, seemed like he was going to be a great leader. Well, Lucas, let's put it this way. Castro promised, paid tribute to the idea of democracy. Castro seemed like he was going to be a great Democrat because he said he was going to be a great Democrat. He was fighting a guerrilla war in the mountains. He issued manifestos saying, I want a beautiful, pure democracy for Cuba. Yeah. And then he, he went on this crazy, you, you describe it so beautifully. He went on this tour of Cuba after the previous president had fled. And as you describe it, he was just talking endlessly, just, I mean, from one end of the island to the other, stopping to talk to anyone, giving speeches to anyone, talking about democracy and the ideals of representation and that, you know, that every Cuban was going to count, that we were going to resurrect the Cuban constitution. And then what happened? I'm not sure history knows why Castro betrayed those promises, but he did. He completely turned about and in a matter of years created a totalitarian state and a dictatorship. And it's very easy to find those early statements and ask yourself what happened. And I'm not sure. There are biographers and scholars who say, look, Fidel Castro was just an opportunist. And when the United States soured on him, he turned to the Soviet Union, Soviet communism, socialism. It was just opportunity. He needed us. But there's other people that say, look, he just was incapable of accepting the idea of competition. But what is democracy? Democracy ultimately is just competition. It's the inner clockwork of a democracy, right? We have referendums and we have elections and we have campaigns. It's all about But Castro was intolerant of anybody who might challenge him. And one reason is that in that march that you described from Santiago de Cuba all the way to Havana, he realized that he had this incredible charisma. And as he spoke, people believed in him. Of course, he was speaking of these promises of democracy, but enormous crowds came out. And this happened after he took power, millions in the square. In fact, he called it the jury of the million, right? He, he said the jury of the million is the proof that I'm so popular, you can't challenge where me. Have you, where have I heard that before recently? He had the biggest rallies. He must have been right. Right. Yeah. So I think part of the question of the betrayal of democracy may have also been a very personal thing, that he had no tolerance for anybody else to say he was wrong. And that was reinforced by Soviet communism and the idea of socialism that essentially did not have any mechanism. For people to challenge him. And that's the system he put in place. The Cuban revolution was a betrayal of the Castro promises in the Sierra Maestro. Sierra Maestro Manifesto, if you read it, is a beautiful, he uses the word beautiful, pure democracy. He does not deliver it in reality. It's a huge turnabout. And of course, uh, as I describe in the book, the pinnacle of that Cuban democracy, the period from 1902, when the Cubans become free, until 1952 is a democratic period. It's called the Cuban Republic. And in that period was a lot of struggle, including writing a constitution in 1940 that was a pure democratic constitution. It was also incredibly long. This constitution had over 200 <laughs> articles. Like they wow. even had something as tiny as setting the minimum pay for every teacher was in the constitution. Wow. The Cubans were really eager to have this constitution and they passed it in the freest election in Cuba's history, the Constituent Assembly was elected to write it. They wrote it. They met in their own capital in the House chamber and wrote it. It was a really important moment. And for 12 years, from 1940 to 1952, they had that democratic experience. Again, it wasn't perfect. There were lots of ups and downs, but power was handed peacefully each time there was an election. And so it maybe wasn't long enough to consolidate democracy. We know now that these things take generations and political culture is not easily established by just a piece of paper like a constitution. But the Cubans had a democratic experience and it was abrogated and it was actually destroyed. Today, much of that history is lost because Fidel took up all the oxygen. Yeah, it's interesting. I even noticed this in your book that your book is not about Fidel Castro. Your book is about Oswaldo Paya and I, I want to hear a little bit more about him, but even just telling the story of Cuba, you can't tell it without Fidel. He's just such a big 
part of the 20th century experience of the Caribbean. And, you know, the middle section of your book, I found myself just thumbing through because he's an interesting character. I mean, you, you want to know more about him. And I, I get just hearing about him, why people wanted to follow him. He's a he's he was charismatic. very charismatic. Yeah. And you're writing about him like kind of as an antagonist. And he's still kind of popping off the page. You know, the thing is this. People were hungry for something, right? I mean, democracy had not really delivered, satisfied them, even though it had existed and, and people like Gustavo Gutierrez, the lawyer, had written a good constitution. But it's hard, you know, democracy is something that lives in people's hearts and souls. And you can't simply say, okay, we're going to be one. You, you've got to actually be one. And when Fidel promised it, it sounded very appealing because Batista, who was ruled as a dictator from 1952 to 1959, but it also ruled Cuba previously as its elected president once, as its strongman president once. I mean, Batista was emblematic of something rotten, right? So Fidel also promised something fresh and new. Fidel promised to follow in the footsteps of Eddie Chibas, this famous radio broadcaster who had been a champion of democracy, a bit of a demagogue for democracy also. But Fidel was going to be his son. You know, he was going to be his future. And he changed. And there you have it in 1960, in 61. By 62, it's over. So who was Oswaldo Payá? Let's, let's get so into his Oswaldo story. So Oswaldo Payá was born in 1952, just 10 days before Batista took power. And he spent his whole life in Cuba's dictatorship. He had no personal experience in that democratic period I described. He was the uh, uh, son of a devout Roman Catholic family in Havana. They were businessmen. His father was a businessman who ran a business delivering newspapers. There were a lot of newspapers and magazines in Cuba. It was a very sort of middle-income, middle-class Havana, at least. There was a lot of poverty in Cuba. I don't want to minimize it. Yeah, you write there were like as many newspapers as there were in Boston or yeah. something like that. It's just, was, yeah. so his dad was the guy who got up at 4 a.m., went to the printing houses, collected the bundles, and then drove all over Havana, dropping them every hotel, every kiosk. And he knew everybody. His dad, Alejo, was like Mr. Havana, right? And also, you know, the bubble gum and the chiclets and everything else. He was the distributor. And then he went home and took a nap. And he did it in the afternoon again because the afternoon papers were so big. And when, you know, Eddie Chabas was in the headlines, those papers people read came off of Alejo Paya's truck and car and his brother, Pepe. So the two of them had this business. They were modestly prosperous. They were part of the sort of establishment of the Cuban Republic. show. And, you know, this whole time, Oswaldo Paya was a young boy, and then his Catholic school was taken over by Fidel Castro, right? He was seven years old when Castro came to power. In those first years when it becomes a dictatorship, Christians and Catholics in particular were persecuted in Cuba. They were marginalized. On the way to church, people were sometimes hit with stones. The front door of the parish church that Oswaldo went to was sometimes pelted with eggs, sometimes People in Castro's government would take a very loud motorcycle and ride in circles around the church during the whole mass to disrupt it. It was There was a lot of persecution. And Paya's mother, who was very devout, Oswaldo's Paya's mother, Iraida, took him by the hand to church. She had seven children. She walked in there and she said, we must not give in. We have done nothing wrong. And she insisted that they not give in. His father, Alejo, who was sort of more worldly and more around town, his advice was keep your head down, study hard, you know, don't fight them. Alejo had a saying, he said, you have to yield a little to triumph. But between the two of them, Aswalo Paya grew up in this family that cherished dignity, standing up for what you believe in, and also of all his brothers and sisters. He was the rascal. He was the fighter. He was the most defiant kid. He would always get in the worst scrapes at the schoolyard. He always, you know, was just fighting back. So this gave rise to when he, by the time he got to be 13 years old, it was 1965. Fidel had now created socialist utopia, except it wasn't utopia. <laughs> it was, there were shortages. And Fidel was gradually confiscating all the private businesses. It didn't happen overnight. And in 1965, Oswaldo Pio is 13 years old. He looks a little bit like Lucas. He's got big, bushy black hair, <laughs> and he's standing by the cash register in the little warehouse that his father had where they stored all the 
gum and the stuff like that for the kiosks. And the militia marches in and said, we're taking over your business. Stand back from the cash register. And Oswaldo stood back and he was frightened. His father was arrested that day and taken away in handcuffs. For what? They took the cars that Alejo and Pepe had used to distribute the papers. They confiscated all the stuff in the warehouse. They took the business away. And this was a formative moment for a young Cuban boy. He was 13. And, you know, his father came back a week later, chastened. He said to the family, you know, I'm glad I'm back. We're not going to, you know, be angry about this, but we're going to continue. And his father then began a clandestine business. And he formed a clandestine printing business of printing these little cards that were called postalitas. And they were very popular among children. They featured pictures of television heroes and television characters. And kids would trade them. They were numbered. You know, you would collect them on huh. baseball cards, right? And, and he made a, a good living doing this. And they wrapped the cards in the back of the house. They sold them. So Alejo never gave up. Alejo had this incredible sort of stubborn streak where he wouldn't give up. And of course, his mother, Iraidis, said, we have nothing to be ashamed of. We must stand tall. These are the characteristics that Oswaldo grew up with. By the time he got to high school, he was already becoming a bit of a rebel. And in 1968, the Soviet Warsaw Pact crushed the Prague Spring, which was an experiment in Czechoslovakia with a more... They called it socialism with a human face, with a more <laughs> relaxed and more passionate socialism. <laughs> yeah, a more reformed socialism. Yeah. And it was crushed by the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact allies, crushed the Prague Spring by force <sighs> to end it. But of course, this was a big deal in all the satellites of the Soviet Union, of which Cuba was one. And even Fidel Castro himself was a little uncertain how to react, because Fidel, of course, was always arguing that we can't be slaves to the big American giant in North America. He was the great voice against imperialism. And here was the Soviet Union crushing this little country. He was quiet for three whole days. Finally, Fidel, in a very wooden and almost sort of frightened appearance, said he would support the Soviet invasion because he said the Prague Spring was becoming too capitalist. But he was actually torn. Oswaldo Paya knew what to say. And for the first time, he spoke out in his high school and he led a protest against the crushing of the Prague Spring. This was a daring thing for a high school kid to do. I think it was the first time he really started speaking out. Uh, he wasn't following his father's advice. He was sort of following his mother's advice, you know, putting his head up. And the next year, he got his draft notice. And instead of going to the military, they took him away to forced labor camps. Fidel Castro had forced labor camps in Cuba. He would send a lot of Catholics there, priests, Jehovah's Witnesses. Anybody who was a dissident or a critic was sent, instead of to the military service, to forced labor. These were camps where, in Oswaldo's case, after he spent 1970, which was the year of the great Fidel effort to have a massive sugar harvest, which fell a little short, but it was the biggest harvest in Cuba's history, they sent Oswaldo to the Isle of Pines, a small island off of Cuba with a big rock quarry. That's where Castro was imprisoned. Yes. Too. And uh, in Oswaldo's case, it wasn't the prison. They were actually in a barracks, but they spent their day in a quarry breaking rocks. Wow. And he was, you know, 18, 19 years old. And this was intended to break him. It was intended to sort of make him more obedient to the revolution. And of course, the opposite happened. Well, that's actually the same thing that happened to Castro. He got sent to the Isle of Pines so that they would shut him up and he wouldn't stop writing. Yeah, but there's not a parallel not, here. No. I mean, the thing is, <laughs> you're not going to accept my uh, I'm not gonna interpretation here. Okay. Because, but Oswaldo, <laughs> I mean, Castro spent the whole time there is sitting in a, basically what was a hospital infirmary. They brought in books. He wrote letters. Oswaldo Paya spent his days covered head to toe with dust in a terrible rock quarry. Yikes. It was hard. But the interesting thing is that by this time, there have been some protests of among Castro's friends about these forced labor camps, word had gotten around, you know, like what kind of revolution is it that has forced labor camps? And so Castro changed the name. He got rid of the old name. He kept the practice. Happy-go-lucky labor camps? Yeah, or something. Anyway, Oswaldo was in one that were called basically these work committees, and they had changed <laughs> the names. But the important thing is that on weekends, they were permitted to go to this little town on the Isle of Pines. 
the reason was they were supposedly taking classes there. They were allowed to walk there. In this little town, there was a church, and it was decrepit. It had been abandoned. And Castro's Cuba, like I said, Catholics were marginalized. They stopped going to church. This is an important fact that many, many of the churches in this country had become abandoned and decrepit because there were so few parishioners. And in this case, this was true. So Oswaldo and his friends cleaned it up. They painted it. They washed the windows and the pews, and people started to come back to this church. On another weekend, when they were finished with the church, sometimes they would be allowed to stay overnight, Saturday night, as long as they came back on Sunday. And they walked into the square. The church was there, and there was a library. And he said, let's go over and see what's in the library. And they opened the doors, and there are these two young women there. They're library trainees, right? Librarian trainees sent from Havana to learn how to run a library. And one of Oswaldo's friends looks at the shelves and says, there's nothing to read here. It's all socialist gobbledygook. It's Marx and Lenin and Engels. We don't want that. And the young woman says, shh, come with me. And she takes him to a back door. She puts the key in there and unlocks the door. And in the back room locked up are all these books of Western literature that wow. were prohibited in Cuba. And most of them were seized from Americans who had had estates on the Isle of Pines before the revolution. And they were put in this back room. Well, the young woman every Sunday allowed Oswaldo and his three friends to come sit and do nothing but sit in a little room like we're in right now in a library and read the prohibited books. And they did that for a year. And at the end of that year, they were much more attuned to the ideas of freedom and liberty, of the classics, of all kinds of literature that they found there than they had been before. So the whole experience of forced labor actually was an education for them in the opposite direction. You know, as, as a Puerto Rican, one of the things I'm fascinated by is why do island countries in the Caribbean inevitably fall into dictatorship? And I think that one of the answers that's obviously more complicated than this is that there's no such thing as an independent island nation. You're going to be in the sphere of influence of somebody, unless you're British, but you're going to be in the sphere of influence of somebody. And there's really only two games in town. You know, when Castro took over, you're either going to ally yourself with the U.S. or you're going to ally yourself with the Soviet Union. Now, maybe it's the U.S. and China. And so he could give all this lip service to democracy. But if he didn't want to be part of the capitalist imperialist system, the only other option was communism. And communism is going to devolve into dictatorship. I think history has sort of borne that out, right? Look, the thing is this. Fidel Castro, I think, you're making the argument that I mentioned earlier, which is that he was an opportunist. Yeah. And when things got hostile with the United States, which they did, um, remember the Bay of Pigs was 1961, that he just turned to the other. But the thing is, this turning to the Soviet Union for succor and support and making good deals with them, he also basically bought into their political system, which right. became dictatorship. And he did that enthusiastically. And he threw his great charisma behind this idea that a revolution was absolute. Fidel said, Everything within the revolution is permitted, and everything without it is prohibited. And Oswaldo Paya was always out of it. Was Oswaldo Paya a dissident? Well, Oswaldo didn't consider himself a dissident because he thought a dissident was somebody who was within the revolution who then basically bailed out. But Oswaldo had never been in the revolution from the time he was a boy, and his father and mother talked to him about how to stand up for himself. And he never, ever was part of it. And this is really important because when he gets out of the forced labor camps and finally when he becomes a young man and it's Havana of the 1970s, we're now in complete Soviet sphere of influence and Castro's revolution is blossoming into this thing. Oswaldo doesn't give up. He's not silent. He looks for another vessel or another vehicle. Oswaldo... When he was a young boy, at the time his father was arrested, there was a new parish priest. His name was Father Alfredo Petit. And Father Petit told the youth in the parish church, which sort of Oswaldo's second home, within the confines of this church, you are free. This is going to be a temple of freedom. You can say whatever you want. One of Oswaldo's friends told me it was like a bubble. And we could have these conversations. And he began to associate his faith, his Catholic faith, with the idea of freedom. In fact, Oswaldo had a very profound, basic idea that he acquired in those times, which is that human rights and your rights are something that are given to you at birth by God. 
and not given to you by Fidel Castro or by the state. And this guided him through the rest of his life. And I think that because he saw the Catholic Church as synonymous with his ideas of freedom, he felt even more compelled to fight for them. So in 1984, he's now turned 30, and uh, he's thinking about how do I carry out this campaign that for freedom, which, again, by this time, you know, Castle's revolution has got a pretty big grip on Cuba, and he decides the church would be the vehicle. And he became an assistant to the Archbishop of Havana, Jaime Ortega. And it was a time in 1983 and 84 when the Cuban church was in dire straits. The pews were empty. Catholics had been marginalized. People had at least, I don't think they gave up their faith, but they kept it to themselves. Castro had eliminated Christmas trees and Santa Claus and all the outward sort of part. He said, you can celebrate inside your house, but you can't have anything outside. Oswaldo Paya defied him. He climbed on the church steeple and hung a flashing electric Merry Christmas sign that he had fashioned out of spare parts himself. And so Paya wanted to be part of this change and thought the church would do it. And as a result of all the difficulties, the Cuban Catholic Church decided, let's have a reflection. Where are we? And, you know, can we change? Much of the rest of Latin America was going through an enormous change in church's attitudes. In Medellin Conference and then in Pueblo, the Catholic Church was shifting from really the elites to the poor of Latin America. The Cuban Catholic bishops said, you know, where are we? And so let's rethink everything. Payal was the assistant to the archbishop in this reflection. And the, they went around the country. He organized the meetings. People stood up and they said, I'm you know, afraid to go to church. They, they discovered there were a lot of quiet believers in Cuba, people who still had faith, but they actually didn't go. And the churches were in such dire straits that they didn't even have paper to print newsletters on, right? One day in this period of ferment, someone said, you know, I stole some paper from work. I took a ream of paper and brought it to the priest because we need something to print our church newsletter on. And the priest said, look, I realize you shouldn't do that, but since we so desperately need it, he blessed it. <laughs> this entire process, Lucas, was going to climax in a conference held in Havana in early 86. And in late 85, Ortega, the archbishop, said, let's have a preparatory meeting. Oswaldo was invited, and Oswaldo then had a girlfriend, his, became his fiancée, Ophelia, and the archbishop said, so what's everybody's idea? How should we do this? And Oswaldo Pai had written a speech. This was the essence of everything he believed in. And it was written with Ophelia's help. It was titled Faith and Justice. Every speech in this conference was going to start with the word faith. But Oswaldo's called his faith and justice. And in this speech, he summoned the church to be what he thought it should be, what Father Petit had told him it would be, to be the temple of freedom, to be the place that would essentially be at the vanguard, at the front of the struggle for freedom. And when Oswaldo finished speaking, there was complete silence in the hall because everybody realized that he had just challenged Fidel Castro's dictatorship. And everybody looked at the Archbishop Ortega, who grew very, very angry. And he slammed the table and he said, Oswaldo Pio, you cannot deliver that speech at our conference. You cannot say that. We will not put it in the final report. No. Pyle was stunned because he had been working with Ortega for this moment. He eventually did go to the conference. He did not submit the paper out of respect for the church. But the thing that he didn't know until later is that secretly the Archbishop Ortega was organizing a rapprochement with Fidel Castro. So Pyle finishes the period of the early 80s feeling that the church didn't fulfill the, his hopes. Ortega does organize this rapprochement. But remember, from Ortega's point of view, pews were empty. He thought there was an existential threat to the church. The church could die. Right. And he was trying to save it by doing something with Fidel, making a compromise. Yeah, that's what the uh, Catholic Church in Europe said during World War II. Look, if we just ignore this whole Jews going to death camps thing. Well, you know? the church has also stood against dictatorship and totalitarianism and Christian democracy also, it's done both. But in this case, Aswalopaya's hopes were completely dashed. And he right. felt that the church was not doing what he had longed for it to do. So I can see that Ortega had a reason for struggle. The church was in dire straits. But Oswaldo's 
really genuine hopes for democracy were completely smashed. And here he was now, he married Ophelia in the fall of 1986 after that conference. And then he began to think, what do I do now? And that's when the story gets better. How did you find this character? I'd never heard of Oswaldo Payá before I read your book. Oswaldo Payá's struggle in this period afterwards uh, leads him to something that caught my attention. You know, he goes through a lot of trial and error. He remembers that in that 1940 constitution that I mentioned to you, there's a provision allowing a citizen initiative for citizens to sign a petition and ask for something from the government. Fidel had torn up that constitution. He had revised it again in 76, but he never, ever eliminated this one provision in the constitution that said citizens, in this case, 10,000 citizens can petition for the national legislature for change and for laws and for referendums. So Paya came up with this idea of collecting signatures for change, for democracy. At first, he called it just for a national dialogue, but then it became a simple five-point plan called the Varela Project, named after a famous Cuban independence voice, Father Felix Varela. And he did this starting in 96. He finally collected 10,000 signatures. He collected more than 10,000 signatures. People signed their names, their ID numbers, their addresses. They stood up to be counted. That's when he came to my attention. I was the foreign editor of the Washington Post. I sent a reporter there. I said, you've got to go talk to this guy who's fighting Fidel Castro with a pencil and paper, asking people to sign this petition. So I knew of him a little bit. And Paya's petition was successful. He submitted it to Castro, who ignored it. Who completely ignored it. But it made a mark. I mean, Oswaldo Paya did something nobody else in Cuba. Remember, lots of people, millions of people of Cubans had suffered under Castro's dictatorship. By this time, there was food rationing. There was no freedom. The state controlled everything. It was truly a state with totalitarian ambitions. And Oswaldo Paya stood up against it alone, like Andrei Sakharov did in the Soviet Union. And he didn't break it. Castro didn't say, okay, (laughs) Castro actually threw it out. But the important thing is that as the foreign of the Post at that time, you know, we carried a story about him. In 2012, Oswaldo Paya was killed in a car wreck. Not an accident. It was a car wreck. A car wreck. Yes. Air quotes. And the car was rammed from behind on a lonely country road. And um, at that time, I was still at the Post. I began to write editorials in the opinion section about it. And that's how it really got involved, and that led to the book. Wow. I just want to point out one thing in your book that I found chilling and kind of amazing is that you just casually mentioned a few times that they have a shark pit that they dump people into. Well, this was Machado. (laughs) This was the 30s. Remember, I told you that in that period of the Cuban Republic, there was one dictatorship, and this was the President Machado became a dictator, and he used this thing where he had a prison, a very bad prison in Cuba that had like a chute and they would chain people and put them down the chute into the shark infested waters. So I I feel like if you're in government and you find yourself having a shark pit, you should probably reevaluate. Maybe you're not the best at being in charge or maybe you might, you might be the villain of the story. If you have a shark pit, I guess is my point. Imagine how hard it is for a small Island, for people that have been through all this 400 years of Spanish rule. They don't rule themselves. They finally become independent. They finally get in 1940 to a democratic constitution. And then somebody comes in and said, I'll build you a great democracy. And he turns out to be a very charismatic dictator. Right. And what does it take for a guy like one man, like Oswaldo Paya, to stand up to that? Would you do it? I would like to think I would, but uh, probably not. Especially with everything to lose. I mean, you know, I'm a family man at this point, And so was Paya. And he risked everything for what he believed in. And yeah, in a way, I mean, Jan Karski, there are parallels between these two characters, and that's no doubt why you picked this book. But Jan Karski didn't have as much to lose personally as Oswaldo Paya did. You know, he was a single guy in the middle of a war zone. He needed to be a combatant. He was of that age. Jan Karski died peacefully in Washington, D.C. in the year 2000. Did you ever cross paths with him? No. No? But I wish I had. And Oswaldo Paya, I never met. And I've written this book based on his family and his friends and what I saw in Cuba but I think that Oswaldo Paya has the stature of Andrei Sakharov, who also stood up to Soviet communism, who was one guy, he was actually an elite scientist, who said to the Soviet leaders, no. And that takes such incredible courage and inspiration and stamina. You know, it's not like issuing a press release. 
I'm talking right. about people who devote their lives to fighting. Payal was not some kind of philosopher who read a bunch of books and said no. He was a man of the street. It's an amazing story. The book is Give Me Liberty. And David Hoffman, we're going to end the podcast by asking the question we ask everyone, which is to recommend two books to our audience. If you want to also read more about this idea of fighting a totalitarian system, there's a book. It's a slightly fictionalized account of one man who fought Hitler from within in Berlin. And home in Berlin was this man took three by five cards like he used to use in classrooms. And he wrote anti-Nazi, anti-Hitler comments on them. And he walked around Berlin and left them in windowsills and in stairwells. And it's a real story. And it's an absolutely awesome um, story. And the only other thing I, I recommend is I also write books about espionage and pub and I've written a book about nuclear weapons. And if you want to read about spies, read Ben McIntyre because hmm. his book, you know, Agent Zigzag, absolutely classics. Thank you so much. Thank you for your book. Thank you for recommending Jan Karski's book. I think I could say it changed my life. It was an amazing read and just sad and beautiful and inspiring. And, and I hope that together. people find the same of Give Me Liberty. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. The episode you just heard was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair 2022 has passed, but the Miami Book Fair 2023 is coming up in November of 2023. Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami. From Sunday, November 13th to Sunday, November 20th, please visit Miami Book Fair for more information. Follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. The Beatles were outlawed in Castro's Cuba. Oswaldo Paya and his friends would leave the barracks at Dow Pines and walk to town singing Yellow Submarine. All right. Huh. Aloud. Wow. Only the Ringo songs made it to Cuba, unfortunately. No.